Welcome to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast. My name is Cheryl, and in today's episode, I'm going to address the explicit nature of the claims made in Leaving Neverland. I've set this issue aside to indicate its importance when evaluating this film. I also wanted to isolate this subject because of the audio clips you'll hear from the accounts of both Wade Robson and James Safechuck. Their descriptions of sex acts are graphic, so sensitive listeners may want to avoid all or parts of this episode. You'll be hearing from voice actor Gary Middleton, and also voice actor Paul Stefano makes an appearance to repeat a passage from the Chandler case. You can find all source material for this episode and reach out to us through our website, michaeljacksoncasefurnissons.com. One of the most talked about aspects of Leaving Neverland is the very graphic descriptions of sex abuse by both Robson and Safechuck. It was shocking for audiences to see Wade and James take their time on screen and basically spell out each alleged sex act. These descriptions delivered the climatic moments of the film and are what convinced many viewers that these accusations must be true. It's hard to imagine that these guys could make up accounts that involve such lurid specific sexual acts and also have them be so similar to one another. It's the details that made their stories vivid, compelling, and convincingly real. As an example, I'm going to play a short clip of Wade Robson in Leaving Neverland, graphically describing alleged abuse by Jackson. When he's down there and, you know, with his, his mouth on, on, on my you know, seven-year-old penis, you know, quickly it turned into having me perform oral sex on him, too. I mean, to be honest and to be graphic about it, like, you know, a full adult grown man sized penis in my mouth, you know, in a little seven-year-old's mouth. But despite how these startling and disturbing details make the accuser's account seem real, I ended up considering them a cautionary sign to be skeptical about their claims. So the purpose of this episode is to make the case that viewers of Leaving Neverland shouldn't give more credibility to the allegations because of these explicit sex stories. I'm going to offer three arguments against using these descriptions as evidence of truthfulness. Number one, the accusers have a history of deceit. The fact that Robson and Safechuck have been so deceptive in pursuit of their lawsuit payout logically leads me to question anything they say about their allegations, including details of sex acts. Robson was found to have been researching tabloid stories and emailing them to himself, and visiting a website devoted to Jackson's guilt, which is filled with details of alleged sex acts by Jackson. If Wade really was abused, this could be perfectly innocent research. But because he made provably false and misleading statements in his legal claims, it's not hard for me to imagine him using this research to help develop false but familiar details of graphic sex acts by Jackson. And it's important to remember that the allegations from Jordan Chandler and Gavin Arviso were leaked to the media when their cases were active, so anyone can easily search and find these graphic accounts. Robson also had access to the abuse stories from Neverland employees like Mark Keendoy and Blanca Francia. Wade cites on his blog some of the books he's read about child sex abuse. And again, because of Robson and Safechuck's history of making provably deceptive claims, I can imagine them studying the research about child sex abuse to make their accounts more realistic. 
In the field of deception science, researchers such as Dr. Sharon Leal from the University of Portsmouth have shown that liars make extensive plans before they lie. Here's her words: Contrary to popular belief, motivated liars do not fidget, avert their gaze, or blink nervously. They're usually calm and have planned their lies down to the last detail. Robson and Safechuck have already proven themselves to be motivated liars. Take Robson's blatant and repeated lies about his emails in pursuit of his lawsuit. Take Safechuck's repeated lies about his work status in Jackson's companies in order to pursue his lawsuit, as just two examples. If we know from deception experts that motivated liars plan their lies down to the last detail, then it's reasonable to suspect these guys could research prior accounts to help source the salacious details in their legal claims and in leaving Neverland. Number two, graphic details of sex acts are part of the blueprint from prior accusers. My second argument against using Robson and Safechuck's very explicit accounts as evidence of truthfulness takes a broader perspective. When filmmaker Dan Reed defends Leaving Neverland, he frequently argues that it's preposterous to imagine that Robson and Safechuck would be willing to publicly detail such heinous acts if they weren't true. And while their graphic accounts may feel shocking when viewed in close-ups on the big screen, there's really nothing new here. Robson and Safechuck are continuing the well-worn pattern of Jackson's prior accusers, who took full advantage of the media's weakness when it came to explicit stories about sex. When I step back to include the Chandler and Arvizo allegations, I see a pattern in which all four accusers and their lawyers fed the media's hunger for salacious details in order to promote their legal case. It was these very details that were key to biasing the public against Michael Jackson. So I want to go through each case to show the pattern. When the Chandler allegations first became public, the story sold papers and sent TV ratings skyrocketing. In the following clip from the 1994 Frontline documentary *Tabloid Truth*, you'll hear from reporters explaining the media mania just after the Chandler scandal broke. I think at that point there must have been、uh, 747s in London Heathrow lining up with with money bags being poured on and fleets of Fleet Street people flying to Los Angeles to、uh, to buy whatever they needed to buy on this story. I saw a guy I'd seen on the LA riots from Parry Match bursting it. Pushing these old people on wheel in wheelchairs out of the way to run off the plane,、uh, you had a sense that people were flying in from all over the world, as indeed they were. I cannot think of a story that's bigger. I mean, this is a story, if not of the decade, or certainly of the decade, but probably of the one of the great stories of the century. There were hundreds of reporters packing the hall, and forty TV cameras up front. Crews from Mexico, China, Japan, Germany, England, France. All the U.S. networks, of course, even us from PBS. Almost every news outlet in America was there, following the lead of the tabs. The media was in a fever pitch to keep up this unprecedented level of public interest. I'm going to continue with clips from the Frontline documentary. When the Jackson story broke, it was a feast, but meat for a morning is gone by noon. A hundred outlets, and each has to have a new headline, a screamer. Twenty-four hours after the Jackson story broke, the LA police raids were stale news. Once the media found out that the police raids came up with nothing, they needed something to keep readers and viewers interested. So they turned to hunting down former employees of Jackson. 
the frenzy was so heated and competitive that tabloid money was being offered to anyone with salacious stories about Michael Jackson, and it didn't matter if it was true or not. Here's tabloid broker Paul Baresi talking about his negotiations with former Neverland chef Philip Lamarck and his wife. My interest in helping them was that they promised me a percentage of what they got. I was not on any kind of crusade to uh, bring anyone to justice, and uh, whether Michael was guilty or innocent at that point was inconsequential. Uh, My interest was strictly for the money, as was their interest, too, I might add. In the tabloids, it doesn't matter if it's true. If you got someone to say it's true, everybody's happy, right? And what the media wanted was detailed accounts from former employees about what they say they saw Michael Jackson doing with kids. And these tabloids were willing to pay top dollar for it. So um, what we were looking for then was a buy-up. That's what you want. You want graphic inside details of what it was like inside Jackson's ranch, how he behaves with the children. Here's former Neverland employee Mark Keendoy at a press conference, offering a snippet of a scandalous scene to entice the media into buying his stories. I swear I saw MJ fondling the little kid, like his hands traveling from the kid's face, his thighs, legs around his body. In the end, the DA concluded the Keendoys and Lamarcks were both useless as witnesses. Even though no one actually believed Mark Kindoy or Philip Lamarck, the media still printed their graphic stories. The point I'm getting to is that the more salacious the story, the more valuable it is to the media. Here's tabloid broker Paul Baresi again, talking about his recorded negotiations with former Neverland chef Philip Lamarck, and how the cost for the story was going up when the story became more lurid. The first time I heard the story about uh, Jackson, his hand was outside the kid's pants. They were asking 100 grand. As soon as their price went up to 500 grand, the hand went inside the pants. So, come on. Now, Evan Chandler knew full well that the media wanted dirt and was apparently feeding stories to the National Enquirer and other tabloids. Here's Evan Chandler's words, quoted directly from his recorded phone call about how his devious lawyer was going to use the media to publicize the scandal. I picked the nastiest son of a I could find. And all he wants to do is get this out in the public as fast as he can, as big as he can, and humiliate as many people as he can. It could be a massacre if I don't get what I want. He is nasty, he is mean, he is very smart, and he's hungry for the publicity. So Evan Chandler and his lawyer want publicity for Jordan's case and they know nothing could stir up the media like details of sex with Michael Jackson. Therefore, it's no surprise that Jordan's initial abuse report was leaked to the media. This report included Jordan's very detailed allegations, which I believe the evidence indicates were coached by Evan and his lawyer. This abuse report gets into the hands of a British news service, who starts selling copies to other reporters. Later on, Jordan's lawsuit declaration was leaked, and the media went wild reporting on more detailed descriptions of sex abuse, which helped Evans' carefully crafted scheme to pressure Jackson into settling. The graphic details of abuse were key to their plan of inflaming the media. In Gavin Arvizo's case, his grand jury testimony with its explicit sex abuse allegations was also conveniently leaked, 
and these titillating details were seized upon and propagated by the media, leading to public bias against Jackson. During Jackson's trial, the media would rush out of the courtroom to report the scandalous details of abuse from former Neverland employees, ignoring the cross-examination that undermined their credibility. I'm going to play an excerpt from an interview with trial reporter Roger Friedman, explaining the media's fevered approach to the trial. Well, former employees get up on the stand and they say the things that were said on Thursday and Friday were the most salacious. I mean, Thursday was a very bad day. When Thursday started, that first hour uh, was with this guy, Ralph Chacon, who had worked at the ranch as a security guard. He told the most outrageous story. Then, and it was so graphic, and of course everybody went running outside to tell, you know, to report on it. But the last, there was ten minutes right before the break, the first break on Thursday, when Tom Metro got up and cross-examined this guy and obliterated him. Just obliterated we him. We didn't hear that, Roger. We didn't hear how he was obliterated. They don't tell us Ralph Chacon's credibility was obliterated because Tom Mesereau revealed how Chacon filed a fraudulent lawsuit against Jackson in 1994 and ended up owing Jackson $1.6 million. He couldn't remember the fact that he had been one of five people who'd sued Michael Jackson in 1995 and lost and owed him now $1.6 million. And when Mesra said to him, how so hold, hold on a second here, hold on a second. Snedden is calling witnesses who owe Michael Jackson money. Chacon was found to have stolen $25,000 worth of goods from Jackson. And he only reported witnessing sex acts years later, once he met with Victor Gutierrez and sold stories to the tabloids in 1994. And just like all the other prior bad acts witnesses Snedden brought to trial, Chacon conveniently can't remember anything about his prior legal claims. And this is one of the, this was the guy who said he saw Michael Jackson performing uh, oral, excuse me, on one of the kids. Yes, yes. This was the bombshell that shook the earth, and uh, talk radio went crazy. This is it. This is the last straw. incredible. Well, it was shocking to hear him say, to have him actually describe it. But, of course, then, when when, uh, Mesro stood up and said to him, well, how much money do you owe Michael Jackson from that case? And he says, well, I don't remember. Mesro says to him, you don't remember owing somebody $1.6 million? He didn't remember anything. He couldn't actually remember anything. And it became, it was really, it was pathetic. There was a pretty low bar for the media when it came to stories about Michael Jackson, even in mainstream media. You only needed provable contact with Jackson. Once that box was checked, the tabloids were ready to pay you and all the media was ready to broadcast any of your salacious details to sell stories and boost ratings. No time or interest in fact-checking. And the more graphic, the more interest. Tom Snedden was fully aware that his shady witnesses would be gifts to the media with their jaw-dropping accounts that shaped public opinion. Again, the details were critical in the Arviso case. This cycle repeats itself with Leaving Neverland. Just like in the Chandler and Arviso cases, the media can't resist salacious details. So during Robson and Safechuck's promotional interviews for the film, the TV hosts make sure to ask Wade and James to repeat these disturbing scenes of abuse. The following audio is from their BBC interview in 2019. I edited their graphic responses to keep them brief. You both talk in the documentary in a very calm, low-key way about some really shocking 
and upsetting incidents of sexual abuse that you say you were subjected to at the hands of Michael Jackson. I wonder if I could ask you if you would be comfortable talking to our audience about what happened. And then oral sex starts. He also liked to have his nipples rubbed. He also um, <clears throat> attempted to penetrate me hmm. anally when I was 14. That was one of the last sexual abuse experiences we had. They also repeat these explicit descriptions of sex acts in their appearance on CBS This Morning. Progressing from there, he would grab my hand and have him have me do the same thing to, to you know, his crotch over his pants. And then it progressed to him performing oral sex on me. And this clip is from Robson's interview on Inside Edition. It started with him fondling, then it would... You know, then it moved into kissing him, kissing me on the lips like a French kiss sort of thing. And then it's the same media reaction as it was in the Chandler case and at Jackson's trial. Reporters wanted graphic details, not the unsexy evidence about credibility. Similar to Evan Chandler, Robson and Safechuck also appear to have hired lawyers eager to use the tabloids to help stir sensationalism about their lawsuits. Wade's lawsuit was first announced by his lawyer using the gossip site TMZ, and the tabloid Radar Online suspiciously got a hold of exclusive court documents of Robson's case, which were not public at the time. The article went on to highlight what else the detailed sexual acts alleged. Robson liked and forwarded these graphic articles through his social media. If he's making a false allegation... Robson's had many years to research his story and to develop the detail that he, of all people, knows the media will find irresistible. Here's the clip from Robson's interview with Jimmy Kimmel again, where you can hear Kimmel and the audience ready to hear dirt on Michael Jackson. What's he like? He's a good guy. He's a good guy? Yeah. Show me where he touched you. And as for Robson and Safechuck's similar accounts of sex abuse, they have the same lawyers, have admittedly met together when Safechuck first joined his case, and they were both likely researching the same prior cases and tabloid stories as they put together their lawsuit narratives. So I interpret Robson and Safechuck's shocking accounts in Leaving Neverland as intentionally feeding the media the graphic accounts they can't resist. This affects public opinion in their favor because vivid details make a story more realistic. Once the media is engaged in spreading the salacious stories, it provides pressure to the Jackson estate to settle their civil claims and potentially bias a jury if the cases go to trial. So to conclude the second argument against giving the allegations more credibility because of their explicit nature, I advise caution to stop and consider the blueprint and consider the massive incentive behind making their claims unusually graphic. Number three, the accusers omit any physical descriptions of Jackson. My final argument against using these details as evidence of truthfulness is the most powerful in my opinion. It's what these guys don't say. Jackson had vitiligo, with striking patches of brown and white spots. He hadn't yet undergone treatment with depigmentation cream when he first met Safechuck in 1988 and Robson in 1990. 
you can see that he still has pigment in his skin in the pictures from these years, including pictures with Robson and Safechuck. David Nordahl was a painter and close friend of Michael Jackson, meeting him for the first time in 1988, the year Safechuck says his abuse first started. Here's a quote from his 2009 ABC interview. In which Nordahl describes seeing Jackson's vitiligo in 1988. When I first met him, his vitiligo had gone to the right side of his face and down his neck. Most of his right hand was white, stark white patches. He used makeup because he had to. Without it, he was speckled all over. Jackson's makeup artist Karen Fay and his dermatologist Arnold Klein confirmed that he had a severe case of vitiligo, with patches all over his body. Which was worsening over the years because of the 1993 police photos. We know that Jackson had brown and white skin patches in the genital region. Even at his autopsy, brown and white patches were documented. There are links on our website to pictures and information about Jackson's vitiligo. So I would expect it to be a shock and quite impactful and memorable to a young boy, seeing brown and white patches in the abdominal, genital, and groin region. Where vitiligo often shows itself more prominently, and because vitiligo causes the destruction of melanin in the skin, the white parts of his skin weren't like Robson and Safechuck's own white skin. This is an albino white. After Jackson's 1993 interview with Oprah, where he first announced his skin disease, Oprah made the following comment: Anybody who knows Michael Jackson will tell you that when you are up close to him, I mean, he he has. Had absolutely no pigmentation in his skin, so you can see all the way through. To you are looking at his veins when you look at his hand. When you look at him, you are seeing through to the to the to the blue veins, and they're you know very 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 apparent. And at first, that's a that's a startling thing. You know, nobody ever talks about that, but it's it's kind of it takes takes you aback at first. So you're like looking at a person who is. Almost、um, like translucent. It's like looking through skin. It's like looking through skin. These men describe their first sexual experience with Jackson in such meticulous detail, but we hear not a word from either of them about the shock of seeing his patchy or translucent skin, which must have seemed quite alien to them, especially in the beginning. Wade said he had showers with Jackson on that first visit. And Robson and Safechuck allege being abused hundreds and hundreds of times, which they say included performing oral sex on him. Wade says he hasn't forgotten one minute of the sex abuse by Jackson, but nothing is said about any distinctive physical characteristics that they saw in his body. In amendment after amendment over the years in their lawsuit and in the documentary, there's nothing mentioned about it. Robson and Safechuck know fully well through their lawyers that any kind of distinguishing physical traits they can describe, particularly in the genital region, would be helpful to their case. But I hear a deafening silence on this subject. Of course, there are sealed police photographs from 1993 taken of Jackson's torso and genital region, so I see a potential legal reason why they wouldn't say anything about what his privates look like. I just can't believe that Robson and Safechuck would be willing to go on and on about these very disturbing sexual acts, and not mention one word about their reaction to seeing Jackson's privates with its patchy markings, its translucent skin, or other distinctive physical attributes, such as all of his scalp scarring and pain issues, or the fact that he's uncircumcised.
is a red flag to me. And when you combine this omission with all of the lying, contradictions, and nonsensical aspects of these accusers' stories, I find it persuasive evidence that these guys are making false allegations. A huge reason people were so affected by leaving Neverland was the unprecedented scenes of child sex abuse survivors speaking so graphically about what was done to them, especially in such a calm and unemotional manner. And especially to such a large film audience, if the allegations are true, it's a very courageous act. But if these are false allegations, Wade Robson and James Safechuck are taking advantage of the media's appetite for salacious stories, and taking advantage of our very human nature to be shocked into belief, instead of using the graphic descriptions as evidence that these guys are speaking the truth. I recommend that viewers of Leaving Neverland see these unusually detailed accounts as a yellow flag of caution. Caution to stop and find out what you weren't told in this film. We'll further address the explicit details of Robson and Safechuck's allegations in future episodes on deception and our season one summary. And that wraps up part three of our series. In the next episode, we conclude our review of Leaving Neverland. We'll take a look at how filmmaker Dan Reed continues the pattern of deceit in his promotional interviews, and take a measure of how Leaving Neverland matches up with accepted standards for documentary filmmaking. You can find all source material for this episode and reach out to us through our website, MichaelJacksonCaseForInnocence.com. Thank you for listening to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast.